Today's show is going to focus on the most American thing you can do. Standing up to executive authority. We're going to discuss how from almost the very beginning, the President of the United States began to abuse his power. Pretty much every president has done this from both sides. President Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt that is, with the Judicial Procedures Reform Bill of 1937, uh, frequently called the Court Packing Plan, was President Roosevelt's, uh, after a lot of his legislation and New Deal were getting struck down as unconstitutional, he believed that he could just add more judges to the Supreme Court. And then once he added judges that were faithful to him, they would approve his measures, or at least they could no longer be ruled unconstitutional. Um, President Reagan sold weapons to Iran. Um, you can claim he's innocent to this day, but it's, in, it's pretty cut and dry at this point. All the way up to you know, President Obama um, assassinating a U.S. citizen with a drone in a foreign country that we're not at war with, and now... I mean, you have President Trump who, who's going on camera admitting that he fired the director of FBI for investigating him. So we need to understand what the Founding Fathers meant by the word executive. It doesn't necessarily mean what it means today. The framers were very wary of executive authority that the at the time the King of England wielded. Now... If we're actually discussing 18th century England political systems, the king isn't an absolute monarch. There's very few instances of absolute monarchs in European history. But the American public believed that the king was an absolute monarch and that parliament was really only a rubber stamp for the king. You know, very general term to say the American public in the United States colonies. They had a, a honestly... They have a wide, a wider, um, a wide spectrum of beliefs, and so it's kind of it's very unfair to say that. But just know that the hardcore, radical revolutionaries believe that the parliament was only a rubber stamp to the king's agenda. Um, and so after the failure of the Articles of Confederation, and when we actually inaugurated the United States Constitution, the president was only supposed to be. The executive branch in the sense that executive means to execute. The idea was that the president, while he does balance the other branches, he's essentially supposed to do what Congress tells him. Congress is supposed to be the, the body that is most celebrated, most revered, and in the public eye the most. Not the president as it is today. If the three branches of the federal government make a triangle... It's an inverted triangle with the president at the bottom. Congress has the power of the budget, for instance, and it tells the president to spend money. This is why when news outlets make the attack and blaming deficits and debts on presidents and Reagan and Obama, it's just baseless attacks. The president can't do anything about this, really. He is constitutionally obligated to spend the money that Congress says. He can't pick and choose. He has to spend the money, and if the United States runs a deficit, it's Congress's fault. It's not the President of the United States. So at the very beginning, you have President George Washington and his decision to not run for president after two four-year terms. That set precedent. 
And that's the biggest word going forward, precedent. If you don't know, precedent is essentially when you're the first to do something, you make the rules. When the United States gets into a civil war, or when the United States is the first to drop the atomic bombs, and as the United States was the first to engage in drone warfare, we make the rules. Other countries look to see that how we use these tools, and they follow suit, and they will always be the justification, well, the United States did this. It's important to remember that going forward. President Adams, the second president of the United States, violated the Constitution and really the most sacred right that Americans hold dear, the First Amendment. The Alien and Sedition Acts allowed the president to imprison and deport non-citizens who were deemed dangerous or who were from a hostile nation and criminalized making false statements that were critical of the federal government. Now, I know you, a lot of you heard the word non-citizens until you're instantly kind of ajar at this, but keep in mind that the way you're thinking of citizenship really didn't exist until the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution with the, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside, end quote. For example, in the United States, there was a James Thompson Callender, a Scottish citizen, that had been expelled from Great Britain for his political writings. He first lived in Philadelphia, and then he sought refuge in Virginia. He wrote a book titled The Prospect Before Us, read and approved by Vice President Jefferson at the time, in which he called the Adams administration a continual tempest of malignant passions, and the president a, quote, repulsive pedant, a gross hypocrite, and an unprincipled oppressor, end quote. Calendar, already residing in Virginia and writing for the Richmond Examiner, was indicted mid-1800 under the Sedition Act and convicted, fined at $200, and sentenced to nine months in jail. In November 1798, David Brown led a group in Massachusetts, setting up a liberty poll with the words, No Stamp Act, No Sedition Act, No Alien Bills, No Land Tax, Downfall to the Tyrants of America, Peace and Retirement to the President, Long Live the Vice President. He was arrested, and because he could not afford the $4,000 bail, he was taken to Salem for trial. He pled guilty, but when Justice Samuel Chase asked him to name others who had assisted him, he refused and was fined an additional $480. He was sentenced to 18 months in prison, the most severe sentence imposed under the Sedition Acts. That's right, folks. We're at the second president of the United States, the fifth Congress, and constitutional republicanism is breaking down. In case you're curious, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who imprisoned the Japanese, German, and Italian aliens during World War II, would use this as a basis. He used this instance as a precedent. Following the cessation of hostilities, the act was then used by President Truman to continue to imprison and then deport aliens of formerly hostile nations, people whose only crime was that they happened to be German, Italian, and Japanese. Now, we can't get into the details, but imagine that you left Nazi Germany to come to the United States, you entered as an alien, you worked toward your citizenship, and you were imprisoned because of your Germanness. Very troubling things that the this president that was established at the second 
president of our United States back in 1798 was being used in 1945. But back then, after the wave of tyranny, the electorate elected President Thomas Jefferson. He openly chastised the expanded executive powers that John Adams had displayed. President Thomas Jefferson generally believing that a United States more focused on agrarian self-sufficiency, every person, a citizen, being having a farm and being self-sufficient, not needing to go to markets or factories for such things. Well, I guess we can all be safe and assured that President Thomas Jefferson would never do something that would be against the Constitution, right? Except the most famous thing that President Jefferson is famous for, the Louisiana Purchase, the buying of lands from a foreign government is not a power given to the president. And quote, Thomas Jefferson even wrote, The general government has no powers, but such as the Constitution gives it. It has not given it the power of holding foreign territory, and still less of incorporating it into the Union. An amendment to the Constitution seems necessary for this. End quote. But that didn't stop him and Congress from signing and approving the treaty. Up until now, you've probably seen that while the President of the United States is acting outside the guidelines, they're kind of doing it with congressional help. You probably know that the President of the United States has a power known as the veto, the ability to dismiss legislation. And while each member of Congress represents a specific regional constituency, only the President, as Andrew Jackson would declare, represented all the people of the United States. As part of this belief in the need for increased presidential action, President Jackson would use his veto power extensively. He vetoed more bills in his term of office than any of the all pre than all of the previous presidents put together. Jackson was also the first to use in turn the pocket veto, a delaying tactic in which the president does not sign a bill within the ten days of the end of the congressional term, preventing it from becoming law. The decision that Jackson would use his veto power was a sharp, um, was a really, really odd thing because up until now, most of the time when presidents had declared or used their veto, they because they believed it to be unconstitutional. President Jackson openly would say that he did not like this legislation and that's why he vetoed it. One of the most infamous executive orders in United States history was the one that issued the forcible transference of Japanese Americans and German Americans to the internment camps during World War II. But Harry Truman also issued an order that seized and nationalized all the steel mills in America during a labor strike in 1952. There were clearly rights violating executive orders. On the positive side, in a famous 1957 order that was respectful of rights, President Eisenhower decreed an end to racial segregation in America's public schools. The U.S. courts have only, only ever overturned two orders, Truman's order on steel mills and the President Clinton's 1995 order to preclude the federal government from contracting with firms that had strike breakers on their payroll. This was supposed to be just a short episode in which I wanted to highlight that it's been presidents from both sides who play fast and loose with what the president is actually capable of. So I pose this question to you. How do we fix a problem when half the country is blind to it?